0: Drug development and disease modification have changed significantly over the last 10 to 15 years. There have been cancers which have been incurable, like childhood diseases, certain leukemias, which are now 100% curable.
1: Hello, and welcome to the CVC Unplugged podcast from GCV. I'm Fernando Moncada, and we have a really cool one for you today. I always love it when we have two guests for the price of one. Hakan Goker and Owen Losman are the managing directors of M-Ventures, the CVC of Merck Group and respectively oversee the unit's activity in biotech on one hand and electronics and frontier technology on the other. Innovation is of course moving fast across most sectors, but in healthcare we really are seeing how tantalizingly close we are to solving some of our most enduring health problems, and we're advancing at a rapid clip. In our conversation we talk about the leaps and bounds that we've come over the past decade in terms of treating and finding cures for notorious ailments, how patient selection is often an overlooked but crucial part of the drug discovery process, and why we should be optimistic about our ongoing combat against disease. We also talk about the big subject on everyone's mind, AI, and what the applications for it can look like both in materials technology and in healthcare, as well as the greater requirements that it brings in terms of medical data protection. We also talk about how mVentures is getting along with spending the 600 million euro allocation it received at the end of 2021, among other topics. It was a really interesting chat and at a time when the news around the world is so dire, had me coming away feeling a bit better about the future. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe to CVC Unplugged wherever you get your podcasts. And above all, enjoy the show. So here we are with a good two for one today. Hakan and Owen of M Ventures, how are you both? Good, thank you.
0: Good, thanks, Fernando.
1: It was it's great to have you on, on, on the show. Well, let's start off the way we always do on the show, with a bit about you guys and, and your background, how you got to where you are today, uh, co-leading uh, M-Ventures. Maybe we can start with you, Hakan.
0: Good, thank you. So, so I'm a scientist by training, which is uh, pretty typical for biotech ventures. Studied in the UK, um, a PhD postdoc, kind of in line with many others, uh, what many others have done. I started my investment career at Atlas Venture, which is a well-known um, entity in the U.S. now. Uh, they're based in Boston when Atlas used to be a global fund. Um, so I was based in the London office, investing in biotech and tech. So it, after the formative years, I moved to a SCAT venture uh, based in the Netherlands, a smaller fund focused on European investments because of the LP restrictions that we had and on, um, on the move from Switzerland to the Netherlands of M Ventures at the time. With the growth of the fund, I joined M Ventures in 2013, when we used to uh, be a healthcare-only fund, and healthcare is drug development in Merck terminology. We were quite a small fund at the time, 40 million, um, small team, grew that to 100 million, 150 million, purely focused on healthcare investments. And in 2017, we were asked by the company to replicate what we have done in healthcare in other businesses of Merck and, and potentially utilize a fourth bucket, which Owen runs, called Frontier Tech and Sustainability, on what else could be a future business for Merck Group if the group were to choose to build a fourth um, pillar in their in their approach. So that has been... My path, um, I've been looking after biotech investments, which cover healthcare and life science tools. So in US terminology, EMD Serono interests and, and Sigma Millipore interests from a strategic investment angle.
2: Owen? Yeah, so um, just a minor correction. I joined in 2018. I've uh, been with Merck um, since 2013. I'm also a scientist by training as well. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a chemist, a physical organic chemist. Um, and I've actually been in R&D uh, functions most of my career. So prior job in uh, Fuji Film, I was uh, I was I was running R&D, technical R&D for commercial projects. I moved to Merck, uh, running some um, R&D for our early phase research. So I was kind of our internal startup R&D manager, um, looking at developing new technologies that were you know very exciting and uh, very interesting new um, disruptive technologies developing them to a point where we could transfer them to the business unit for commercialization. After sort of four or five years of doing that, I had the opportunity, uh, this, this coincided with about, uh, about 2018 when, as Hakam mentioned, we, we set up the new funds in uh, to support the electronics business and frontier tech and sustainability. And I was, uh, at, that, at that time I felt that, um, you know, venture was an interesting tool. I mean, I'm constantly being driven to bring good science into products, right? and uh, I was doing that through you know, the organic way of doing internal R&D, and that's fantastic. But we were looking at these very, very long-term projects, often funding them all ourselves. It's very high risk, and it's very, you know, very long timelines. And Venture looked like a very attractive model to try and achieve something very similar, but de-risking it, you know, raising external capital, you know, doing things like funding to milestones rather than funding to annual budgets. Um, and it was a tool that I felt could really augment the internal efforts that we were, we were already doing are very complementary to the, the work we were doing internally, looking at that longer timescale and bringing in more partners in order to help us to achieve you know, these strategic aims of, of the investments. So, yeah, I think that's, uh, that covers the, the, the path, right? So
1: Owen, oh, how do you think your, your background in R&D kind of um, informs how you approach investments?
2: Well, I try, and, I try and forget as much as I know about doing R&D because it doesn't help with the investments that much, because you end up getting too, uh, too involved in the technology and uh, really you need to be thinking about how you execute and deliver value to, to customers. So I think where it does help is it, it does give you an ability to talk to technical founders. We do a lot of early stage investments. I think it's very helpful having that scientific technical background to be able to, you know, uh, find rapport and um, uh, understand where founders are coming from, understand some of the challenges. You know, it doesn't help in terms of the investment side of things. You you understand the length of time and the uncertainty about R and D. So you know I think we I think it gives us additional ability to support startups that we invest in because of this deep knowledge we have of um, you know how these things work in reality. But yeah, I mean again, it's just uh, it's just having that that technical background. I think just just gives us a bit more credibility when we when we're talking to early stage technical founders. But I've tried to be less technical over the years and learn more about you know how you actually bring these things into into business. And I think that's that's also it's managing that interface, right? So it's understanding how you transition from one to the other and where you need to be agile. You know, what what works for early stage R&D doesn't always work for growth stage and doesn't then work for subsequent scale. So I think understanding where those transitions happen and being very aware and having had a lot of experience working at very different stages in the value chain, very early stage technologies, very late stage, uh, gives a good breadth of uh, exposure across all the things that startups will face in, in this journey from idea to product, basically. Hmm.
1: I think a lot of people might also be interested in, in, in kind of knowing a bit more about when when you have kind of like the the, the co-MD kind of situation as you guys do at, at Ventures, how that working relationship works, right? Because obviously in terms of your focuses, you have, you know, hack uh, you your focus on biotech, mo and you on the kind of the frontier and the more material side, but you're still working out of the same pot of money, right? So, so how does that kind of work, and, and how do you kind of balance those two?
0: So it's it's not actually that untypical. I mean, historically, many venture funds had mixed um, foci. When, for example, I was at Atlas Venture many years ago, that was actually three different focus areas under the same pot of, pot of cash. So partnerships are partnership, and we don't, have a formal partnership here because we're a corporate strategic fund but the way that we operate is is very much like a venture partnership where you know the investment decisions the fund management recruitment and having an understanding in in the spaces actually benefits each of us adds additional expertise to decisions which all in the hope that you will you will actually get to Risk mitigated investments that can deliver better financial and/or strategic return for the organization. So we think it's a, it's a. I mean, historically we have had uh, single heads in in the organization, and since we took over, Owen and I have have been doing it together, which we think is a very healthy way to make sure that you know decisions are driven. In the right manner, um, right speed, and with the right background to it, so we think it works actually
2: yeah. really yeah. well. Yeah, I mean, I think it works really well in, in, in several ways. I mean, the it's good to keep that demand some demand separation because we're dealing with stakeholders in the corporate which are very different. I, I mean, partly it reflects about our parent our parent organization being so diverse. Um, you know, all the way from these like monoclonal antibodies for you know cancer treatments all the way through to, you know, process chemicals for semiconductors. So it's, it's quite unrealistic to expect somebody to have the depth of knowledge required in all of those topics. So having that domain knowledge separate and the ability to converse at the right level with our internal stakeholders, and yet at the same time make sure that we've got best practice sharing, because the venture component of what we do is very similar, despite the, 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 the content being very different. You know, the execution of a deal, the terms, you know, the kind of economic side is very similar in most cases. So I think we, we, we make sure that we keep those best practices, but still you know, have, the, have the best uh, technical ability to converse with our stakeholders. So I think it works really well. I think we've, we've optimized and, uh, and made it a lot more efficient um, since we've been able to run this together. And we've, we've also you know, found a lot of ways of harmonizing processes across the different teams, which I think makes us more efficient and more effective, basically. So.
1: So, yeah, it's it's two distinct kind of focus areas, but they're not always non-overlapping, right? So, so sometimes they'll you'll get a portfolio company that can that can go across both.
0: Well, that, I mean, that's the additional benefit that we have been seeing over the last, I mean, in the, well, let's say the, the recent past, and you know, you can classify that as the last, you know, two, three to five years, where there is a lot of technological advances in electronics, in life science tools, in healthcare. Where you do see, you do see overlaps from a technological point of view of utilizing different materials, for example, for purposes of um, processes that lead to potentially shorter time periods for drug development. So it, we find it very beneficial to have those, you know, to be so close to such three organizations that are experts in their space. And within our organization, Owen and I have a really good way of kind of looking into the detail of technologies on what else can be done to speed up whatever you're trying to speed up in that investment hypothesis that, it, it, that maybe sometimes it is good to look outside of healthcare towards uh, electronics, performance materials, to actually see what is ha- happening in other sectors that you could copy paste into healthcare or, or life sciences. And also from the AI angle. I mean, there are multiple parts of machinery that is being utilized for AI and machine learning, which can, which obviously is is a very, you know, very technical side of it goes to um, electronics. But quite a lot of those applications also apply to drug development and life science tools.
2: Yeah, it's quite interesting. We've seen, you know, over the the last sort of five years, we started to invest heavily in things like AI accelerators, knowing that these were going to be technologies which would drive um, a lot of adoption in the electronics business. And now it's really fascinating as we are seeing these technologies starting to mature and come to the market, we're also seeing the use cases being developed and the real value creation oftentimes is in is in applications in healthcare, for example. So investments that we made five years ago in electronics are now starting to, you know, effectively find a way into data centers and other applications which are then aiding our healthcare colleagues to, you know, design drugs faster, more effectively. And things like that. So there's, uh, there's a lot of overlap in terms of, um, you know, some of the enabling technologies are now being applied in different spaces, which really, is really powerful.
1: Yeah, and I was going to ask uh, about AI in a bit, but I think my, my, this, this is a good place, I think, to talk about it. Like, like, as you kind of alluded to, it, it's, it's, it's a kind of underlying technology that, we've, that we are seeing permeate pretty much every industry, and, and we're kind of still scratching the very surface of, of seeing what applications it can be used for. Um, what are some of the more kind of exciting use cases that you've seen for it, both in, in in biotech and in the material space and, and frontier technologies that you're looking at? That is
2: okay. Well, I'll I'll start us off. So, I mean, I think it's quite funny that the uh, I, I was um, I was doing what you would call AI maybe ten years ago. It wasn't very effective then because we didn't have the computational power. But it was it was heavy lifting and a lot of maths, and you know, it was giving good results, but it wasn't to the same scale we're seeing these days. Now we're seeing a lot of well, we're seeing it being applied ubiquitously, I would say. To some in some cases more effectively than others. And I think, you know, we'll continue to see um you know this penetrate many different applications, many different areas, in the same way that all, you know, computational components and tools have, right? Simulation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think, you know, the the underlying technology is still developing really quickly and The systems and the processes on how you integrate these things, how you get the data, how you do it securely, how you do it, you know, in a trust, in a trustworthy way where, you know, people can trust the the results coming out of it. I think there's a lot of fundamental technology that needs to be addressed before we can really rely on it in many of these applications. But the rate of penetration is quite breathtaking. And uh, I think, I think it will continue this way as we, as we develop more and more um, ideas on how you can use this technology.
0: And if I, if I may add a few
2: things, so
0: we've actually placed a number of investments over the last year and a half in various approaches that are utilizing AI and machine learning. I mean, my majority of this is, of course, you know, what is the quality of the data that you're feeding into the system to be able to see that you can actually trust the outcomes? So there are various approaches. So there is, you know, there is all the way from digital pathology, i.e., you know, without using any, any typical dyes that you use today for immunohistochemistry staining, which is a, you know, day to day job in pathology labs in identifying, you know, what, what may be certain aspects in a certain tissue that is most, you know, most of the time in, in relation to, to healthcare is about, you know, clinical um, samples, etc. So we actually invested in a company like that a number of years ago, years ago based in LA called Pictor Labs that are doing digital pathology, utilizing AI and and machine learning. Then you go flip to the other side where you can look at AI and drug discovery, kind of, you know, more more recent phenomenon where you're utilizing, again, the AI aspect to analyze enough chemistry reactions, biological reactions to be able to design, develop superior Binders compounds, both in small molecule and large molecule spaces, that gives you the advantage of potentially moving your drug development a lot faster than you would do using current systems. That can also go towards more on around spatial biology, which again is a more recent concept. And, and the way, one way of using that is, is going into again, patient data you know histochemistry slides from existing trials or the work that has been done to really analyze them and find if find fast if there is a link where you can actually your your analyses could help you predict what patient groups to use what potential outcomes could could come from your certain trials these are expensive propositions in the in pharma development chain that you know for your typical phase two to phase three, it can range from hundred and fifty million to a billion dollars in, in large indications. So if you could speed up the development and utilize the patients that are truly predicted to give a response to those A is more ethical way of moving forward. B is a lot faster and could potentially in the future drive prices of drugs lower because you haven't just spent that much money on R and D, so you can actually afford to have different pricing on on the on these drugs, so a lot of applications in in healthcare, a lot of applications in life science tools that are you know that are certainly looking like it will speed up um, the whole process of drug development all the way to um, registration and and getting drugs on into the clinics and on market.
1: Yeah, no, it's 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 a super kind of exciting development. I, I would imagine for for the healthcare space, and to your point about. Obviously, needing high quality data to 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 make these you know a, these AI applications work, and, and we were kind of speaking about this the other day, Owen. To what extent does the presence of some kind of AI technology kind of further highlight the the importance for data protection in in the kind of medical space, you know, patient protection, what have you? Does, does, does that come more into the fore than it already is, or, or
2: no? I think very very much so. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's I think if you look at this from from different aspects. I mean, there's there's AI which is really trying to like the generative AI, which we're seeing a lot of hype around at the moment, which is really trying to infer new things, right? So it's more about the creative process, like coming up with something new. And this is where the drug development, a lot of these areas come in. But there's a lot of AI which is a little bit less sexy, if you want to call it that, which is just about trying to take data that exists already and try and get more insight from it and try and deliver value from 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 that route as well. And we see that, you know, we, we work in some of the most conservative industries in the world, right? The, the healthcare industry and the semiconductor industry are both very, very conservative industries. You don't change anything in a semiconductor manufacturing process unless you really have to, because you can have huge unintended consequences, cause a lot of cost. They call it an excursion if you have an, an unknown event which derails your manufacturing. And one of the companies we invested in, Tignus, they use the data which the fab already produces To help them make better decisions on on how to improve yield, how to improve processes or how to spot errors before they happen or give give them early warning on these errors before they happen. And these are directly transferable. These are directly translated through to immediate economic value. But to your point, there's obvious concerns because, you know, owners of the tools, owners of the processes don't necessarily want a software company or a chemical company to have access to all of this data. So they want to have the benefit of the model, right? They want to have the benefit of the insights which it develops, but they don't want anybody to see the data that's gone into that to form that model. So there's a lot of these technologies such as uh, federated learning and other privacy enhancing technologies, which allow users to, you know, exchange information in a very secure environment to build collaborative models together, which is really where a lot of the insight comes. You know, that could be the patient versus the the, the drug manufacturer. It could be, you know, the chemical manufacturer, the, the foundry. And so, looking at how you basically facilitate, you know, secure transfer and sharing of data to produce the collaborative insights, which benefits everybody. And I think there's a, there's a lot of uh, technology that still needs to be developed uh, around that, and it goes hand in hand with the AI development
1: as well, with the model development and the other techniques. And and so so then go, going digging a bit more into 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 your strategy. So just just to give uh, li- listeners an idea, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. So you guys are. Mostly kind of stage agnostic right looking at early seed stage to to series b typically in that in that window right and it, you know and i know i think it was at the end of twenty twenty one i think that that you know your your war chest got supplemented to the tune of i think six hundred million that's right euros to de- to deploy over five years how's that kind of coming along
0: it's well it's on track it's going well
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we have more white hair, so we have been
0: Opportune to, to utilize, um, utilize the, the cash that was, that was kindly trusted to us in, at the end of 2021 to put that to work across all the funds, mm-hmm. um, all four spaces that we focus on. Been a, a pretty busy two years. We're actually kind of putting together our biannual update at the moment where, you know, it's a good reminder of what work has been done, how our portfolio progressed, how our new investments uh, have been coming along and some of the plans for next year and the year after. So it's been a, it's been a, a very exciting time for us. And of course, you know, when we got that occasion, we we're in the middle of the corona pandemic and some of the, you know, pricing challenges there, which then kind of turned upside down on on, on the market. And looking backwards on what we have done, it's all been very meaningful investments mm-hmm. at the meaningful norms, let's call it where we don't regret any of, of the activities at that time uh, with those companies helpfully developing um, for the future. So it's been
2: really good. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, we focus mainly on early stage, but we can go as late as Series B. It depends a lot on geography, obviously. Some Series Bs are uh, mm-hmm. a little bit about bite. Well, I
0: guess the nomenclature is less relevant. I think more It's the, more about this, the, the stage sizes. of the yeah. um, development as well as ticket sizes. Yeah, yeah.
2: But yeah, we've been. Um, I mean, as as I mean, as a fund that's been around for so long, you know, we're we're relatively mature. We've got a large portfolio mm-hmm. um, of companies which we're, we're we're managing as well as, and and we just want to keep pace with the new investments because that's you know where we also generate new strategic value and new insights. So, you know, the six hundred million allocation was really you know twofold. It was really to continue to to grow and develop the fund in in the trajectory that we have been doing, but but also to support the um, existing assets mm-hmm. that we have in the portfolio, which is, you know, a, a growing number. And obviously you're getting towards very, some of are getting to a, quite a mature stage, so that also gets a little bit more costly to, to maintain. But I think we've had a, you know, a pretty balanced approach between existing and new investments yeah. right. and, and a good
0: number of exits actually yep, um, yeah, exactly,
2: yeah. that, that actually, you know, that actually, uh, make it harder to, to spend the money, <laughs> yeah.
0: that you know, that every turn a significant amount of cash. Of, from the financial return perspective, and a number of collaborations that have taken place between our portfolio company and various businesses of Merck over the yeah. last few years. So, we, we seem to have gone on plan to what, you know, what we anticipated to happen, which was in our strategy and business plan. Yeah. So, very happy with that.
2: Yeah, and I think another point that's worth highlighting here is you know, every, there's no such thing as a, a standard CVC. Everybody's different in the way they approach everybody has a slightly different model. In our particular manifestation, we, we don't like to mandate that there's a project. It's, it's, if there is a project already with Merck, point where we make the investment, that's great. We're, we're happy with that. But 90% of the time, there isn't. We use it as a KPI rather than as a prerequisite. So some funds will re- require this happens. We use it more as a KPI. And one, over the last years, we've realized that you know that KPI is a very high number. And that despite the fact you know, we don't have any specific interactions between Merck and the investee at the point where we invest, most of those companies end up with some relationship with the parent company in the future. And, you know, aside from the financial return, you know, this is something that we really have been important to us to secure the the strategic value that we create and making sure that we have the visibility of the portfolio to the, the stakeholders within the organization. And that we're seeing this, you know, our thesis about this being strategically relevant Bears some truth in the end because the organisation does actually start to work with them or, or learns from from that investment. So I think, as well as the the financial success, we've we've also been you know very proud of how we've m- managed to secure the strategic value from the companies we've invested in as well on on both you know and for the value that that brings to the portfolio as well as the value it brings to Merck.
1: Great, I mean that, that's that, that's what you want, isn't it? And, and on the topic of new investments, as you alluded to. Hakan, obviously, when you, when you guys got the money at the end of 2021, the market was very different, right? And, and one of the, I think, the results of, of the, the downturn, or whatever you want to call it, was that it became something of a more investor-friendly market. So were, were, have you been able to kind of stretch out that pot more than you thought you were going to be able to when you got it? Um,
2: I think we might have done more deals than we thought we might have done, rather than stretching the pot, further yeah. than yeah. we thought we might do. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> But I think, you know, we've, we've made the best of the opportunities around. Uh, you say more investor-friendly. It depends on whether you're the existing investor or the new investor, whether it's more, right. more friendly yeah. or yeah, not. That's a good um, point. I think that's not It's not very. – it's been quite heterogeneous, I would say.
1: Mm.
2: I think good companies that have fundamentally got uh, performing well have found it less difficult raising. And given how much diligence we put in and how much effort we put in in screening the companies in the first place, People were joking in 21, end of 21, diligence is back. Well, diligence never went away for, for us, right? Yeah. We, it's always been something that we've done very, very thoroughly. Um, and I think that's borne out with the, uh, the quality of the, the portfolio that we've, yeah. uh, we, we've built, basically. So, oh, and we,
0: we have, since the end of 2021, 20, we have placed in more than 10 new investments. So 2022, 20, we're not even at the end of 23, right? So we have put in more than 10 investments in place across the funds, which is a very healthy number for us. So we didn't, you know, we have increased the number of investments per year since then, but it's been all again, very much meaningful investments in the usual venture, venture terms rather than some of this, the structures that we have seen, which we thought that was not very healthy for us to, to play in. So we're happy that we have done those and we continue. Along the same track, Um, as Owen said, some of the companies that were financed during during the pandemic have struggled since then in fundraises. Thankfully, that's
2: few to none of our portfolio. Actually, to counter, and some some of the ones we did over over that period have actually raised quite significant follow-on rounds. So, yeah, I think as I said, I think it's quite heterogeneous. I don't think I would say say that there's much commonality. And it's it's been
0: healthy. I mean, you know, usual. Market dynamics indicate that when times are bad, companies usually depend on corporate venture capital Mm -hmm. being a bit of a longer stretch in their, you know, fund lives, many of us being evergreen, having, you know, deeper pockets than some of our institutional peers. And we have been kind of healthy in that process of, you know, being in a number of pretty key financings, um, Mm -hmm. being co-leads or leading the investments ourselves from all the way from seed to company, well, company creation to seed, all the way to series C, which is one of our latest investments that was announced this week, a company called Nuscom in Switzerland and Italy, focusing on precision medicine Mm -hmm. with the format of personalized cancer vaccines and off the shelf cancer vaccines based on a very neat platform that underlies it in a phase to develop. So very happy
1: off the shelf. So so you could walk into a pharmacy and get a well in in, in the future that
0: well, well off the shelf terminology. Um, yes, in a way, not necessarily from a pharmacy, but off the shelf mean that in a biologic setting you would have vaccines like small molecules or antibodies that are that are packaged. So it's not. Personalized to you per se, which majority of cancer vaccines and cell therapies have to be because of the immune system. But it's been done in a way where a stockpile of vaccines could be utilized for multiple patients, not necessarily
1: depending on their immune backgrounds. Gotcha. That, that, that's really interesting. You know, I wonder in, in the process leading up to an investment, right, the, 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 when you're doing your diligence, et cetera, how. How different is it, you know, when, when, when you're looking at, at assessing the feasibility of a technology in biotech versus kind of, you know, semiconductors or, or frontier technology, given the longer development cycles and that, are, are you, is it harder to validate like a potential? Hang on, which is the, which is the longer development cycle? Mm-hmm. Just... Or, 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 or and, and which is harder to validate, <laughs> I suppose. I think
2: semiconductors uh, take just as long to develop as drugs.
1: Correct. It's actually quite,
2: I don't know, there's there's maybe no accident that that Merck is in both these areas. As I said, they're very conservative industries, and they also have very long timelines. And once you're in, you're also in for the long time. I guess the difference is that semiconductor, as we've seen in the last few years, is a bit more cyclical. So we do have these kind of demand uh, ups and downs, which actually I'm surprised has had quite little effect on the the strategic uh, investment landscape. So we find the most corporate that we work with in that space, despite the the cycles are still investing as normal. And I think that's because they're very used to these, the cyclical nature of these things. So um, I don't think there is much difference between the, these timelines, but remind me what the question was, Fernando. And then I'll, because uh, you derailed me with the, uh, I had to kind of clarify when you were talking about being <laughs> longest. <there. laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I mean, no, that, that's, that's a good answer, but also I was wondering about the, about the actual, I suppose difficulty in, in, I mean, and it's always a challenge to assess, you know, how how viable the technologies are. But I suppose in in biotech, you also have a, you know, third party, often public sector actor that kind of has to put their stamp on it, right? So does that kind of bring in an additional level of complexity to it?
2: Yeah, I mean, while semiconductor is less regulated, you still have to go through a very, in order to get something into a foundry, for somebody to trust that material, and it needs to be developed in a process. So it's, there's no FDA that needs to approve it, but if you want, if TSMC or Intel or Samsung or anybody wants to put it in their fab, it's probably just hard to process, frankly, to get it in there, right? So it is almost like a, a regulated industry in itself through, through the customer, and the process needs to be developed so robustly. And it t- it can take quite a long time before you get from an enabling technology to something which is really, you know, high volume manufacturing. because. And it's also very challenging. You go from like making things in a lab on a small scale or with IMEC or something, and then you know the next step is there's no kind of like let's make a small you know a small pot. It goes into like a, t- a ten billion pound foundry somewhere. So the, the, there's a certain bar that needs to be hit with these technologies. It takes a long time, and and there's a lot of quality to get right. But that's what Merck does really well, and that's why I think we can help a lot of the companies in this space because we understand what the quality needs are, we understand how the supply chain works, we understand what those Approval processes are be it through the fab or through the regulatory bodies and that's value that we can also help bring to our portfolio companies as well in that in that regard so so I don't think there's a uh, I think there's a lot of uh, overlaps in that the the difference is really looking at things like product market fit is the bigger challenge for us in tech so you know if you're developing a drug for a specific indication you know how many people in the world have that indication you can size the market relatively easily The problem for us is we don't often know whether the thing's going to work until we've actually got to that point of high volume manufacture. So product market fit can be more of a challenge. The counter is true in drugs. You don't know whether the drug's going to work until they put it in. And so uh,
0: (laughs) how how far competition may move ahead of you, right? I mean, a glitch of a, you know, one, two year delay could change the outcome quite significantly. But, you know, like any other, you know, risk areas, these are calculated risks that, that one needs to take if you really want to be part of, the, the next generation of, of potential f- future products. Healthcare is evolving constantly. The way we treat diseases are evolving. The way the doctors are behaving. The way the, the FDA is, is, is um, and other other regulatory institutions are progressing their decisions. It's all in evolution. It's a very fast moving space at the moment. So you do have to take calculated risks if you want to stay at the forefront of participating in, in providing healthcare with the associated um, income that you that the pharma or life science tools company can take in.
1: Yeah. And, and to that end, we, we've, we've mentioned, obviously, targeted oncology a bit and, and AI technology. But beyond that, what, what are you guys seeing out there that's really exciting you right now?
0: So we have certain areas of interest at, at Merck Healthcare, oncology being one of them, Neuroinflammation, another, and this is an area uh, that is anticipated to be early in the development of neurological diseases, be that on neurodegeneration all the way to psychiatry, some psychiatric diseases, where one of the very few parties that are very large in, in fertility, human fertility, male and female. So these are all areas for us for, um, for potential investments from a strategic point of view. Plus, We are quite agnostic when it comes to new technologies, new platforms that could potentially in the future give products in any of these spaces that we... So sometimes it's too early to tell where a technology or a product would prove its major value. And we do not ignore those. We don't say, oh, let's go develop, you know, you guys go develop your product to a stage where you know and then come back. We actually take the risk of getting involved, setting some of those companies up. Um, either alone or with others to really help build the technology, hoping that one of those areas would be a future fit for future Merck strategy. And if it doesn't, that's also good. We can look at those then as as, as financial investments and, and support the company as our institutional VC peers do.
1: And do you find that demand follows technology development or is it vice versa? I know there's always, you know, there's always a, 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 a well, it's a it, cycle. There, but
0: it depends. I mean, it's chicken and egg. So you have somewhere the demand is 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 following that demand is following technology, and others is where the demand is then demanding new technology. Yeah. So it's tough to answer that one.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I can. Uh, you know, from the electronics and frontier tech side, you know, we we've had a big focus on sustainability over the last few years. We've been working with a consortium of other CVCs in the semiconductor space. It's quite a difficult industry to penetrate so we've been putting out some support through uh, the semi organization and with our friends like micro and intel samsung etc to try and help startups that have got technologies that can help with water energy material efficiency to bring those technologies to the semiconductor industry and we're helping to get them engaged with the industry so the topics there are you know as i said water energy things like that materials for Merck specifically, you know, we're, we're we're looking at technologies that can help to mitigate the PFAS component in in the industry. This is a big a big problem throughout the whole industry, and it's something that we're looking at technologies that can either abate or replace these PFAS materials because they're essential components of many of the chip manufacturing processes. We're we're continually focused on things that drive in high performance compute So anything that makes transistors smaller. Anything that means we can pack more functionality into less space more efficiently. So looking at accelerators for AI, data center disaggregation, things like photonics, and also, you know, other things like um, digital twins. So this mer- merging of the physical and digital worlds and how do we, mo- how do we best exploit that? How do we best monetize that? How do we make, you know, materials faster? How do we make processes more efficient and this kind of thing? So quite a broad range of, of areas that we're interested in both from you know, the technology side as well as the, uh, the enablement side. And these technologies also fall through to things like supply chain resilience, right? So digital twins to understand, like, let's say what happens if a volcano erupts somewhere or, you know, this port gets taken out. So things that we can look at in that space to help make things more resilient. And then the other topic I mentioned earlier on, which has been a high priority for us for the last couple of years, is really looking at how do we enable this secure and confidential data sharing between parties so that we can really get to this collaborative models that are benefiting from everybody's data, but still preserving the, the security and the value of, it, of every party's information. You no,
1: know, it's, it's always fascinated me that you know, for, for something like materials technology, a lot of people might think of materials technology and think, oh, great, we'll, we'll get better touchscreens or whatever, but, but it's really ubiquitous, and it, it, it's really everywhere. It's, it's the stuff that other tech is made of, so it's super important. Everything's made of something, yeah. Yeah,
2: exactly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so.
1: Another thing that I was curious about, you know, what, what is something, and perhaps this might be one for you, on uh, what's something that people don't tend to know about the drug discovery process, right? Because everyone's, you know, kind of vaguely aware of the basics. It has to go through, obviously, research and validation and approvals and trials, et cetera. But, you know, what, what are, which is already obviously a significant barrier to entry, but what are some of the kind of trickiest minefields that people might not know about?
0: It, that, that would have been an easier question to answer before COVID. I think everyone right, everyone had is. a really good exposure to what the challenges are in drug development, especially when we we're all waiting for a vaccine to come through. And, you know, the, initially the feedback was, well, it'll take uh, two to five years to, to get a vaccine approved. I think that was one of the challenges that people actually saw that drug development is not that I just think of an idea and the next day I can inject the patients with it. And comparatively, the vaccines that we have seen during the pandemic were extremely fast. And that was thanks to new technologies, new RNA technologies that could speed up development for vaccines against certain epitopes uh, in a shorter time frame. so the thing that maybe I wouldn't say that people don't know about it, uh, but I would say that maybe people don't focus on it is that, you know, patient selection in trials and again, that, that kind of goes back to the cost of a potential trial and, and making sure that you have the, you have the right patients for it. that patient selection process becoming quite key both in the eyes of the regulators, the pharma and in return biotech companies, the privately funded biotech companies that, you know, we have a limited time, we have a limited pot of cash, if you can kind of put that as an umbrella need. You can't spend billions on trying to develop something and not be able to price it. And then when you price it, then there will be certain pressures that, you know, that's not affordable for many governments or, or, or um, insurance policies. So the patient selection process and technologies that come to help that process are pretty key to day-to-day life of many biotech companies now, from biomarkers to analysis software, To various ways of looking at changes in biological systems. And in oncology, that's been kind of around. Maybe if I can exemplify neurology and neurodegenerative diseases, these have been long and costly trials demanded by the regulators to show that you rightly so that your your drug is making a difference in the outcome of the patient. Now looking at you know aging population, the, the incidence of certain neurological diseases increasing for various reasons, including you know the general age um, aspect, is that both pharma and regulators are working in ways to actually enable surrogate markers to be recognized as endpoints of trials, which can then give you enough confidence to move to the next scale and maybe even allow you to utilize a smaller number of patients to go through the trials for a potential approval. And there has been a lot of rhetoric and news flow and discussions around the recent antibody approvals for Alzheimer's disease, for example, Mm -hmm. how do you get there, what's your population, is it working, what percentage of improvement can you consider it as working in inverted commas? So these approaches will see more coming through. There are various ways of measuring changes in brain biology upon drug administration, which we hope to see utilized in, in 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 more trials, and of course, eventually be acceptable to the regulators, so we can get novel mm-hmm. drugs to patients with living with these pretty disastrous diseases.
1: And in, in terms of customer acquisition, then, uh, to to what extent the, the, does the structure of a country's healthcare system kind of come into play there in terms of how you assess their ability to to get those customers on board? So if you have, you know, a, a a privatization leaning system, like in in the states, which also has obviously Medicare, and Medicaid, and stuff like that, versus you know NHS in the UK, which is very public sector focused. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't want to comment too much on that, but
0: essentially, it comes to the point of you know what each country believes is is a, is, is making a significant difference in in medical cost of that of that patient living with the disease, especially nice in the UK evaluates that pretty, you know, in a, in a, you know, very systematic way, each country has their own systems. And, uh, you know, I mean, overall, it's not a concern if you if, if one's drug is making a significant difference versus what exists on the market, or maybe what doesn't exist. So, you know, compared to the gold standard, if you if you have significant difference in, in disease modification, then I, I think a, 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 you know, a, a geography adopting the treatment is not is is not a question, or at least
1: not what we have seen. Mm-hmm. And zooming out a bit, bit big picture, but given I suppose maybe the the, the totality of what you've seen, right, on, on a personal level, how optimistic are you about our kind of ongoing ability to to treat? You know, historically very difficult to treat diseases.
0: I think I look at that well. We look at mm-hmm. that pretty positively. I mean, also from the, the, the pharma side that drug development and disease modification have changed significantly over the last 10 to 15 years. I mean, there have been cancers which have been incurable, like childhood diseases, certain leukemias, which are now 100% curable mm-hmm. or near 100% curable. There are orphan indications that actually have drugs now rather than, you know, rather than pushing patients to certain different, you know, alternative paths. So so drug development and provision has has improved, significantly improved. And as more money flows into the in into research from academic scale onwards, we expect significant, let's say, novel drugs approaches, biologies to actually prove that multiple other diseases would be treatable in not so long a future actually. Yeah, and I mean, these,
2: just look at the I mean—the amount of additional data we can get from, you know, improved imaging technologies, improved well, resolution, correct. you know, give you get so much more insights that you can get to mechanistic understandings, there's so much more information available, and correct. so much more computational power available, that you can start to really look at these, like, larger scale system problems. And, and I think that opens up so many more opportunities for a treatment, for diagnoses and treatments, right? It does. So, and, and
0: now, knowledge base is also less siloed in various geographies or universities, etc. So the way that we work and the speed that we can actually work together globally, you know, something gets understood in one side of the world can be transferred really easily mm-hmm. to the other side, good or bad, at, 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 in certain, um, certain fields. But that is speeding up our understanding and the work that can be done. Added on with the, let's say, the non-biological speed that we're getting from computing, speeding, is it speeding yeah. up
2: of computing Matur- and high approaches. Yeah, and the maturation of things like high-throughput technologies. I mean, we had a wave of this in the 80s, 90s, you know, large libraries of high-throughput screening. Okay, great technologies, but really, you know, very hard, still, still just, it becomes a, a numbers problem. And the ability to, you know, put orders of magnitude more numbers by doing that computationally just means that you can screen much bigger spaces much faster, um, therefore, you know, many more ideas are going to come out.
1: And looking at your portfolio, are there any kind of technologies there that you know ten years ago you'd have thought impossible or, or near impossible?
2: But all <laughs> the ten probably. year old, all the ten year old companies. <laughs> 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 all of them <laughs> well, we have a. I don't know where to start. Yeah, I mean, um, we don't do things that are going to be easy. I think right. So we have a. You know, we have a lot of passion and belief in many of the technologies, but there's a high risk to to, to many of these, right? But I don't know. I mean, I, if you'd asked me, would we be doing five years ago, would we be doing optical computing uh, investments? Well, I made a talk at CES about five years ago saying how this was the, the future and uh, it was 10 years away. But it does seem like it's now only five years away. Right. We're seeing high volume manufacturing coming in and many, uh, you know, many good innovations that are starting to get into widespread use. So um, I try not to be too. I try not to be too judgmental on how, uh, how I believe a technology will work or not, because, uh, you know, it's easy to be wrong there. <laughs> I mean, from, this,
0: from the start, maybe I can add a few things here, Fernando. So from the start, we have been financing cutting edge technologies. So that's why, you know, it wasn't a joke when we said, probably all of them is <laughs> uh, probably a fair remark. And that is because of the kind of our phenotype, right? We're early stage investors. We have been strategic investors. We have uh, historically we have taken an active choice of not making late stage investments. Yeah, we invest when
2: there's still science right, risk, right? Right.
0: So, so majority of those have been in that space. So you know, ten years ago, did we actually believe that digital staining would work in immunohistochemistry? Like, yeah. histochemistry? No. I mean, this was this was still a dream in people's minds. That how can you look down a microscope, or how can any algorithm can look down a microscope, look at the data and be able to stain without using physical yeah. stains. So yeah. that's just maybe a simple example there. But majority of our portfolio falls falls into that into that bucket.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, to your point, Owen, about things being kind of being five years out where you thought it might be 10 or whatever, it's, it's always good, as suppose, to be in an industry where the crystal ball is a bit like a rear view mirror, right? Objects are closer than they appear. That's, yeah, yeah, that's a good problem lovely. to have. Yeah. <laughs> that would be lovely, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that's also
2: part of the portfolio approach. You know, we, we, we're thesis driven and we, we test hypotheses. So we're looking at, you know, if this works, then this. And, you know, so I think that's also part of the philosophy in which we approach the investments. We're here to do the hard stuff. Our organization does the hard, does hard stuff too. And we're looking at beyond where the organization's working in many cases, right? So it has to be pretty disruptive because the stuff that Merck works on is cool anyway, right? And it's already in the bucket of, of difficult. But it's not surprising that the things that we're looking at is going to be, you know, slightly maybe more risky in a lot of cases.
1: Yeah. Mm. I'm, I'm mindful. I'm, I'm keeping you guys a bit uh, a bit later than I, than, than I, than I anticipated. But b- right before we, we end off, we always like to, to have a little section at the end of the show for, for the benefit of any founders that may be listening. So I suppose, firstly, if someone wants to get in touch with you, how do they do that? And then when they get the opportunity to pitch you, what is it that you want to hear from them?
0: Happy to. So you know we have LinkedIn profiles, website, you know the usual, the usual ways of connection. We're present in many of the industry events, at least one or two people for for that purpose of talking to talking to founders, uh, entrepreneurs to get to understand their technologies and see if we can actually help them support them. I think one point of you know when do we you know when do we get a pitch? I think it's always good to Explain in literally two sentences when you meet in person what you're doing. And for that to really remain in the mind of any investor, not just necessarily us, is that you really kind of address what the market need is and how you're getting to it better than your competitors. So that unique selling point is very important because that's essentially what all of us are looking for. So, what is the significant change that your technology, your mind, your efforts will provide that can really change a whole industry? In in a way that others have not have not managed to do. So, if you can get those things across, then the usual steps of you know you're sending your deck, people doing their homework, and then you're doing a pitch when people have done their homework, so they understand what you're saying is probably the most beneficial route to any investor's heart. I would say.
2: Yeah, I would just add that we are a strategic investor. And that does give us, you know, we're, we're geographically agnostic, but we have got some specific areas that we look at. So I would encourage people to do their homework and check our website. Make sure you try and target the right person because you'll get a much better um, response if you get the right person. And then when, when, with the pitch, I think to, you know, Hakan's points were, were, were perfect. I would just add, you know, it helps if you're talking to a strategic investor. And, and I don't mean this specific to Merck, but to every strategic investor, think about what it is that that investor can bring you and what can you bring their parent company right it's we are strategic investors there has to be some strategic value creation we like that to be of both ways we like that to be two-sided so it's worthwhile thinking about what does that mean for you as a company um, when you pitch us because that makes our job much easier if we understand you know where can we bring value to you and what do you need from us and we can very quickly identify whether or not that's a mutual benefit i wouldn't say that's a prerequisite but that means our first conversation can be a lot a lot more rich if if the founders have done their homework in that regard, right? So it makes
0: Understanding, way. I mean, again, as you said, like for any investor, understanding, you know, what their experience has been, especially for, for strategic ones, what their what their areas are. I mean, you know, for example, we don't do anything in infectious disease and in healthcare or very large devices on on the um, on the life science tool side, and then we do receive a lot on. Anti-infectives. And it's, it's kind of, of course, you know, you're polite enough to, to respond and say, hey, you know, this is not for us, but founder actually did that work already, then they wouldn't also be, you know, spending their time on knocking on doors that that may not be very useful yeah. to start. But, you know, in, in general, you know, people do their homework really well. And, and we have very useful conversations with a lot of very smart people out there that we enjoy. Yeah. Um, which makes us come to work on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean from a personal perspective what I love, you know, when I'm seeing pitches as what the thing that excites me most is what what is it that you, why is it that you're here? Why, what what makes you excited about this this business? Why are you going to be getting out of bed in 5 years time when everything's going wrong? So I like to understand the founder's story. How did they get there? Why they're passionate about what they're trying to do? Um, that 's just my personal uh, thing it doesn't, it doesn't impact the investment or not, but it 's one of the things that gets me very excited and I love to hear those, those stories
1: and, and then that 's for founders and on the corporate side, what, what do you think corporates can do more of or a better job of not necessarily Merck but just writ large to, to help their CVCs and, and the ecosystem?
2: Well, I think you know we've had a, a lot of experience in, in our parent we have a ve- we're very lucky to have such a great organization, very innovation driven very sympathetic and understanding to where venture can help. I think where corporates they really need to understand that venture is a tool and it's it's part of a full toolbox, right? So it complements R&D, it provides optionality, it gives you additional it gives you additional mechanisms to engage with interesting innovative companies, it gives you additional inv- ability to engage with your partners in the ecosystem as well. So I think it's a hugely valuable tool. I think it needs to be used in the right way. And so where parent organisations can help is to basically embrace the tool and understand and, and try to understand how this can be used effectively within the innovation pipeline. So we're not here to serve everybody in the organization. you know makes a huge business we have many people doing you know a lot of, uh, a lot of great things in terms of like customer engagement things like this. Venture isn't going to solve all the problems but there are some things where it can be really really powerful and really valuable and understanding where that can be and how that can best help. I think is is a really important um, aspect, and it's also part of our job to help. I wouldn't say educate, but help to make sure that we're uh, providing the right input to the stakeholders, yeah. so that we have that um, we have that level of uh, understanding.
0: I mean, one point, uh, just thinking about it, is you, you know you've, you've been right on 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 the spot for that that the expectations have to be you know have to be realistic from venture tools and and our organization. We've been very lucky with that. Historically, I think overall corporate venture has probably been the oldest in healthcare globally, mm-hmm. uh, with some of our peers being set up in 1975, the kind of same age as I am. And, and, and then others have followed further on. And one of the challenges that is, is less so impact, none so in healthcare is that when corporate venture first started, the corporate side would always want to have a, some kind of a hook on mm. either the assets or the platform of the investee company, which naturally becomes a, a potential hurdle when that company needs to progress and grow and maybe attract some competition to it. So, so healthcare understands that. So pharma, pharma CBCs understand that, and they have been, you know, they have been acting in the right way for a very long time. Uh, we do see from time to time in other sectors where that kind of evolution hasn't really taken place yet. And I think that's probably one of the one of the points, as Owen said, is to understand how the venture tool can really provide the maximum benefit to you without asking too much out of line with what a small company can deliver eventually.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think GCV does a lot of um, a lot of good work to try and help. I mean, with new CVC, making sure that we, um, you know, making sure that we, we. I mean, it's also every new CVC that comes in, the way that they operate within the industry impacts the existing ecosystem, right? So it's good that we can share those best practices, help people, because, you know, it is a very specific kind of industry that we're in. Um, and there are certain, you know, things that help and certain mm-hmm. things that hinder. And it, 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 it's, it's, it's good to have that forum um, and that expertise within the GCV to be able to, uh, you know, share that best practice and make sure that we're, as a community, behaving well towards our parents and our startups and that we're providing you know the right support um, at, both, at both levels
1: well that's what uh, that, that's what we we strive for so so thanks a lot M- much appreciated and it, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to both of you and then you know best of luck to to you and your portfolio companies i think more than most sectors you know you 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 guys invest in stuff that can really have a deep impact so so really best of luck and i'm sure we'll be uh, keeping in touch yeah so we'll speak to you soon, fernando thank, thank you very you much That's it for this week's episode, folks. Quick reminder to subscribe on your platform of choice to always keep up to date with our latest guests. I have been Fernando Moncada. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from in Production, whose great work you can check out today at inearproduction.com. We'll be back again next week, as ever. Until then, have a good one.